So as we've been going through the book of, of Romans, uh, we've been constantly going back to Paul's thesis statement in chapter one. Last week, I gave you guys a quick pop quiz. I don't know if you studied between last week and this week, but if you haven't, no big deal. But if we can, again, go back to that thesis statement, it's verses 16 and 17 of chapter one, and it's essentially what Paul is going back to constantly as he's writing to the Romans. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it is the righteousness of God uh, is revealed from faith to faith. And this is the key statement. As it is written, the righteous man or the righteous shall live by faith, or the just, in maybe some other translations, the just shall live by faith. And that, that statement, the righteous shall live by faith, will be something we go back to time and time and time again tonight. It's going to be reiterated time and time again uh, through chapter four. So this thesis statement, we can't lose sight of it. We have to continue to kind of make it our anchor and make it our, our focal point as we go through these scriptures because it is the lens by which Paul is, is hammering away at this uh, idea of righteousness apart from works, only by faith. And, and so as we studied the last few weeks, Paul, again, hammered away at all men are sinful. It doesn't matter if you are a heathen, a worshiper of a false god, a false religious system, worshiping the creation over the creator, uh, denying uh, the truth that is of God and, and, and exchanging the truth of God for a lie. And then he, he went in to explain all the downward spiral effect of that sin and, and how that pervades the individual and the society in, in terms of the behavior that it leads to. And then he addressed the hypocrite, the person who believes that they are self-righteous through their good deeds and they look upon maybe somebody who is engaged in sin. They look down their nose in condemnation and in judgment, but they themselves are engaging in the very same deed. So they're, they're hypocritical in their, in their judgment and condemnation. And Paul says to them, do you think you will escape the judgment of God? You are doing the exact same thing. So he addresses the hypocrite and, and exposes them and their sin as well. Their righteousness is not based on their self-righteousness. It's, it's actually their sin that is, is glaring. And then the Hebrew, the super righteous, the, the Jew who is trying to attain justness or right standing before God by fulfilling the law. And so as he attempts to seek uh, to prove them uh, that their error in their ways, he hones in on circumcision and how circumcision was this outward act that was empty because their hearts weren't right with God. And so he points that out. And again, continuing to go down the line, the heathen, the hypocrite, and the Hebrew. And then finally, last week, we got to the point where he says, all men and women are guilty. All have fallen short. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what classification of person you are. The whole world is guilty. And we see he, he quoted so many different scriptures, primarily from Psalms, one from Isaiah. Last week we went through them, but you saw things like, the, by the works of the law, no flesh or no person is justified in God's sight. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that none are righteous, no, not one. So these all-inclusive statements that say ent the entire world is guilty. Now that paints a pretty bleak picture. And if we were to just leave it there, I don't know where we go from there. Right now we're saying, well, okay, what now, Paul? What, what do we do from here? Where do we go? And so that's where we're going to pick, off, pick, pick up, but then we're going to uh, have the, the solution to the problem. This, the sin issue will be resolved, but Paul's going to continue to point out and point to some of the key leaders or the key uh, figures of the Hebrew faith, Abraham and, and uh, David. 
But before we get to chapter 4, let's finish up chapter 3. So in chapter 3, Paul, again, his whole line of reasoning, is the context is righteousness, right standing before God. It's essentially the salvation issue. How do you get right before God? And, and, and he's hammering away at this, and he says, Where then is boasting? Is it excluded? By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the man circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. And so Paul again is going through this salvation issue. How do you get right before God? And so his first question is, then if, you, if all men are sinners, where is the boasting? How can you boast? And he said, obviously, it is excluded. For boasting is, um, is, is a complete error, and it, it, it's, uh, it shows pride before God. And, and, and if you don't have a humble, contrite spirit before the Lord, you are in a very dangerous place. Because if my salvation is any part uh, due to my actions and my abilities to fulfill the law, I'm going to be prone to boasting. Let's say it was a 30%, 70% split that the Lord says, you know, I'm going to take care of 70% of your salvation. You just have to follow the law 30% of the time. Even that sliver of 30%, I'm going to be prone to boasting. I'm going to get self-righteous in those actions, and I'm going to start to lose my ability to have a right standing before God. A couple other things happen is by grace we have been saved, not of faith and not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that why? No one may boast. It is a gift of God. So therefore, I'm rejecting the very gift that God has given me by, in, in this, in this uh, action of boasting. I'm also going to become or think I'm becoming my own savior. To a certain degree, I'm becoming my own savior through my good works, therefore nullifying what God has done for me on the cross through Christ and, 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 and the blood that he poured out for me on that cross. God would then be also a debtor to me. For my good works, now God owes me my just due. I've done these works, now now God, you are a debtor to me. I've done 30% of the work, you now owe me And they have to acknowledge that I am owed this particular debt. So salvation is now a payment to me versus a gift. And so that is why there is no boasting. And so in, oh, I'm way off there. Where then is the boasting, he says. In in, uh, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, it says, But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul said this in Galatians, that if there is any boasting, you boast in Christ, for Christ is the one that deserves the glory. He deserves the recognition. And if I boast in anybody, it is I I boast in the Lord. And so the next question he asks is, by what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. And when you look at this term, the law of faith, it seems to be a contradiction of terms because faith in and of itself isn't necessarily a law. 
but he's talking about a principle or a rule. This is the rule of the new paradigm by which we are to be uh, right in right standing. There is no law that's going to justify us or make us in right standing with God, but it is indeed a law of faith. And so Paul is setting up the basis by which he will prove to his Jewish brethren and to all of us as well who are not of the Jewish faith or the Jewish background that God ordained faith as the basis for justification before he ever uh, gave the ritual of circumcision or the law to Moses. So again, any time our motives are impure, where our works are aimed at receiving glory, where we're looking to, to get a self-righteous attitude or become, it becomes an affront or an offense to God, and therefore he opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so our humble, contrite spirit will lead to the position of understanding that we need to be justified through faith and not of works. The prideful man wants to do it. The prideful person wants to do it in his own strength, wants to do it through their own works, not the humble person. So verses 29 through 30, he asks yet another question and answers them immediately. He says, is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. There's one God. There's one plan for salvation. God did not need a plan B. He did not have to go through and say, wait a second, I got to rethink this. I got to come up with a better plan. It didn't go right the first time. Man has sinned. Man has fallen short of my standard of expectation, my laws. So now I have to come up with a different plan of action. That is not the case at all. Now, Paul did say that there was an advantage to the Jew. They were entrusted with the oracles of God, if you remember last week. So if they did follow the dietary laws, the financial principles, their agricultural practices, they were going to reap the benefits of that but it had nothing to do with salvation. It was all the blessings that would come forth as a result of following the oracles of God and, and, and the, the game plan that he has for man. But it doesn't have to do with salvation. The Jews and the Gentiles are like are in the same position in terms of their justness before God. They stand in their sin without a savior. So God had one plan for, for salvation for all people from the beginning for the Jews and the non-Jew or the Gentile. So therefore, that's why God had to become man. That's why Jesus, therefore, completely fulfilled the law. He completely did it perfectly, and therefore, he uh, fulfilled the law, not to abolish it, but to fulfill it. He came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it, but to fulfill it. So then he asked, do we then nullify the law through faith? And then I, I, in my version, it says, may it never be. In your version, it may say, certainly not. I love certainly not. It's just more emphatic. It's more clear. Do we nullify or do we make void the law through faith? He says, on the contrary, we establish the law. So in light of the right standing before God, where our justification comes from faith, um, does that make the, God, uh, the law useless? Do we just now void uh, the law altogether? It has no value to us whatsoever. And he, do we just kind of throw the law to the scrap heap and, and, and completely forget about, about it? And he says, absolutely not, certainly not. May it never be. The law is vindicated or proven right in the life of Christ. Christ fulfilled the law perfectly. And therefore, as a humble person, I'm grateful for the law because the word says the law is a tutor. It teaches me where I fall short. It teaches me that I need a savior because I can't do it on my own. So therefore, like a tutor who might teach you in math or in English, you're grateful for that tutor to, to show you where you have fallen short, to show you where you're not meeting the mark, where you're falling short of the standard that, that is set. And so therefore, it, it, we recognize we need a savior. We recognize that by putting our faith in a savior that it makes up for where we 
uh, completely fall short. So we don't nullify the law. It has been established through Christ. And so he says we, dis- we establish the law. And so going forward here, we, we turn to chapter 4. And we start to look at Paul thoroughly. He's, he's a thoroughly established that all men are sinners. He's thoroughly established that apart from, uh, the, uh, apart from works, we cannot be just before God. We do need, it, it, is a, it is about faith, and it's always been about faith. And so this isn't a new concept. Again, it's not a new plan. It's been God's plan from the beginning. And Paul is primarily addressing his Jewish brethren, but he's also, uh, we're going to see that he's also addressing those that uh, could be outside the Jewish faith or the Jewish uh, heritage. And so he's going to point to Abraham and David, two of the pillars of the Hebrew faith, right? If you're looking at the Mount Rushmore of uh, the Hebrew faith, uh, you're, you're looking at Abraham and David definitely on that Mount Rushmore. And then I would maybe say for the Law and the Prophets, Moses and Elijah, but that could be another discussion for another time. But Paul is going to point to Abraham and primarily focus on Abraham throughout the text in chapter 4. He'll, he'll point to David for three or four short verses. But he's going to point to Abraham as the forefather of the Hebrew nation, and then he's going to point to David as the king of the Hebrew nation and, or, or Israel. And so we're going to look at these two pillars of the Hebrew faith. So let's look at verses 1 through 3. Verse, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. What then shall we say? What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works... He has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So Paul turns the focus on Abraham, the forefather of the Hebrew faith, the forefather of the Jews. And Paul illustrates that Abraham's salvation, what he found, in in a sense is what he says there, is that justification before God is consistent or parallel to the Christian's belief system or salvation today. Abraham's faith is very similar, very parallel, similar to the Christian salvation today. And Paul points back to Abraham's experience with God in Genesis 15. And so in Genesis 15, 5, you can read it for yourself. Uh, Paul reaffirms and reestablishes that, uh, that there is no works involved in this equation. It's all about uh, uh, Abraham acknowledging what God has said to him and, uh, and saying amen and saying, yes, I believe it. I indeed have faith in what you just said. Because you could look through Abraham's life and say, you know, at the age of 75, Abraham departed Haran uh, to go to Canaan on God's, um, on God's uh, order. He, he, God said, you know, you're going to leave your, your home now and you're going to take Lot and your wife and you're going to leave your homeland. So he was instructed to do so and he did. That could have been accounted to him as righteousness, but it wasn't. And if you remember, uh, Abraham rescued Lot after the War of the Kings in chapter 14. Lot was taken captive, his family was taken captive, and Abraham went and rescued his nephew and his family and brought them back. And that could have been accounted to him as righteousness, but it wasn't. It's a good deed. He did a great thing, but it wasn't accounted to him as righteousness. But equally so, if you remember, Abraham also lied two different times about Sarah being his sister because he feared for his life. 
He also took Hera, Hagar, Sarah's handmaid, as a concubine, in, in essence trying to help God along with the promised son that he was, he was promised. And yet he, he did conceive uh, Ishmael through that particular relationship, through his concubine. But again, you can see that that was uh, a, a, maybe a lapse of faith in, in, in Abraham's life, trying to help God out with this promise that he was given. So in chapter 15 of Genesis, God promised Abram, that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And the, and the word says that in his spirit, he said, amen. He said, so be it. He confirmed God and he believed it. And so God said, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars. And, and therefore, this was credited to him. And this is a banking term. It could be termed credited, counted, reckoned, or imputed. This is a banking term that says this is now accredited to your account. This meaning has a banking term or banking uh, uh, relationship to it. In our human economy, we understand this, right? We go to work, we get a job, we earn a wage, and then that wage is now deposited into our bank account. And if we make enough deposits and we work hard enough and we maybe get those raises, we continue to deposit. And each one of those deposits is credited to our account. And then we get that, that statement each month and we can start to see our account build and build and build, right? And we start to see our, our account credited according to our wages or according to our works. However, God has a different system, a different accounting system, a different economy altogether. So if we come to him based on our economy, based on our system, our paradigm, it can maybe go something like this. We can attempt to make deposit after deposit of good works, and the heavenly bank teller will say, um, I'm sorry, we don't accept this form of currency. We don't accept the money or the, uh, uh, the, the deposit that you're trying to make. And not only that, your account is not in good standing. Furthermore, you actually are overdrawn. You're completely in the red, meaning you, are, you owe the bank. You can say, well, wait, wait a second. I've been making deposit after deposit. I've been working really hard. I've been actually very faithful in, in working and, and, and making these deposits. So... I should have a healthy balance to my account. Sorry, ma'am. I'm sorry, sir. Uh, you ignored our attempts to inform you that each of these deposits were worthless. The currency that you're trying to deposit is not good here. So therefore, because they were worthless, we just kind of cast them aside. They're, they're no good here. Your money, your account is, is overdrawn. You are in not good standing. And so verses 4 and 5 says, the one who works, his wage is not credited to uh, credited, put to his or her account as a favor, but as to what is due. So if you work, you're credited not as a favor, but it's, it's what's due to you. That's what he's saying. When you work, you will earn a wage. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. And so when a person works, their wage, the outcome, is earned. Works yields wages. And we understand that it's an obligation for the employer. At the end of two weeks, that payday, the, uh, the employer is obligated to pay you for the work that you have completed during that time. And we all understand that. That's a system that we're very familiar with. But when a person doesn't work, when they simply believe and their wage is unearned, and it's credited to their account, but it's unearned, it's unmerited, not out of obligation, but it's given as a gift, that's very difficult, and that's God's grace. God's grace is unearned, unmerited favor. I didn't deserve it. There's not one thing I did to earn it. It's just given to me, and it's put into my account 
thankfully, and my account builds just because I believe, not because I worked. And that's what Paul is getting to here. So the incredible economy of God and his accounting system works in a way that seems completely upside down and completely counterintuitive to me as the natural man. But when I start to understand spiritual things, as I come to the Lord and I start to study his scriptures and I start to wrap my mind around the concept of grace, it starts to make me fall in love more and more with the Lord and understand there's nothing I can do to earn it. There's nothing I can do to earn more favor. It's just given to me as a gift. So the moment we believe and accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, two things happen. God places our debt, our faulty works, our sins, all of the junk, all of the gunk that we've piled up, he puts that on Christ's account. He puts that on Christ's account, which he paid in full by laying down his life at the cross. So all of my stuff, all of your stuff, all of our stuff that we've piled up, that we've amassed in that account, he credits that to Christ's account. And then God places Christ's riches, his righteousness, to our account. Who wins out on that deal? We do. That is a deal that I don't understand how people don't take every single day of the week. It is simply grace. It is simply pure love. So God's grace extends, extends beyond our human capacity to understand. He justifies the ungodly. That's what Paul is saying here. How can God justify the ungodly? How can a righteous God justify the ungodly? We'll go back to chapter 3. Everybody's a sinner. So who else is he going to justify? He's gonna, if you come to the Lord, you're ungodly because we're all under sin. We all have a flawed past. We've all broken his laws in some way, shape, or form. We've all sinned and fallen short. So we are all to some degree ungodly. But the moment we believe, he justifies us. He puts us in right standing. As Pastor Eric said on Sunday, just as if I have never sinned. And so therefore, it seems unthinkable, but it is God's economy. So Paul established at the end of chapter 3 that none are righteous, but yes, you still can be justified if you simply believe. God's grace penetrates through our ungodliness and unrighteousness the moment we believe, and Abraham is that template or the picture of that. So Abraham, the forefather of the Hebrews, was, was a flawed man and made several mistakes. However, the moment he believed, it was accounted to him, it was credited to him, it was imputed to him as righteousness. So Paul now shifts his focus to David, another pillar of the Hebrew faith. King David, uh, and he's going to use his witness for the same purpose. Verse 6, it says, Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and those whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Again, you see that word account there. And so, Paul is quoting Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, where David is lamenting his sin with Bathsheba. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. It's a very common uh, Bible uh, uh, picture that we know, uh, uh, an account that we're, we're familiar with. But in addition to that, in order to cover up that sin, uh, he ordered Uriah, or Uriah's death in battle. He ordered Uriah to go out to battle with his men and then for the men to pull back and then Uriah was succumbed by the enemy. At that point, he was also a murderer. So he was an adulterer and a murderer and he's lamenting this sin in Psalm 32. And when you look at Psalm 32 and you start to read it a little bit further on, I gave you the first four verses here, you start to see the impact of David's sin. It's starting to manifest itself physically and spiritually. His body was wasting away. You see him groaning all day long. 
God's hand was heavy upon David and his vitality was drained. So his weight, the weight of his sin, he hadn't yet confessed it. He's getting to the point, when you read this psalm, he's at a point of brokenness and he's ready to confess his sin and, and receive forgiveness. But at this point, sin is manifesting itself heavily on David physically and spiritually. And David makes two astounding uh, uh, statements. Transgressions can be forgiven. Sins are covered. He says that first. But then he says, the Lord does not impute iniquity. Paul, goes on, is not done, uh, Paul just got done saying and referring to Abraham that the Lord imputes righteousness. So the Lord does not impute or credit iniquity to us. So once we are justified, once the salvation issue is paid for, once it's done, once you profess your, your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the salvation issue is over. And now you're talking about, well, what if I sin after that? What if I have a Bathsheba moment? Maybe not to that degree, but what if I sin and I uh, fall short and I grieve God in some situation? What happens at that point? Well, you're start, and, and if you're not confessing your sin. You're maybe suppressing it. You're maybe putting it off or denying it that it ever happened. A couple things start to happen. One, you start to see what happens here in da with David. It starts to weigh heavy on you. It starts to manifest itself physically. Secondly, you start to, you break fellowship with God. You grieve his spirit to the point where now you have broken fellowship with the Lord. So once God has imputed his righteousness onto us, he's not going to impute our iniquity to us. That's what the psalm is saying. The, the iniquity is not imputed or credited to our account the way righteousness is. Righteousness has filled our account. It's paid for our sins, past, present, and future. Thank God. But now when I do fall short, what do I have to do? I have to confess. I have to repent. I have to, with a humble, contrite spirit, with godly sorrow, confess my sin to the Lord. And so in 1 John, verses, uh, 1 John 1, verses 6 and 7, it says, If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So if we are in some sort of sin and we are denying it and we walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not practice truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And so that cleansing effect of his blood, once I come to the Lord, I reestablish that fellowship. Remember last week, I kind of used that picture of a rupture. You've ruptured your relationship with the Lord at that point, not, not for good, but you've broken fellowship with that sin, that rebellious act. And so therefore, we have to come with a contrite, humble heart and say, Lord, I've fallen short. Please forgive me. Your blood washes and cleanses me, and I'm forgiven. The salvation issue wasn't, wasn't at stake. It's my fellowship with God. So Christian sin, therefore, can break fellowship with God. And so David was experiencing the impact of, of broken fellowship with God. He was experiencing the physical impact of, of sin, how it was weighing on his soul. And so therefore, he must confess and repent. And he did. He was a man after God's own heart. He was a man that, that lived a, a godly life to a, a high degree. And yet, pointing to David as a man who, who also fell short. And so the records that God's keep, that the records that God keeps is his loving kindness chooses to forget. He doesn't keep these records against us. He separates our sin as far as the east is from the west. He chooses to forget our record of sin. And so once we are, are, are confessing our sin, he forgets it and he doesn't impute iniquity to our account. He only imputes or credits righteousness to our account. So now Paul is going to turn his focus back onto Abraham here in verse 9. It says, in, the in this blessing, then on the circumcised, is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. Verse 10, how then was it credited? 
while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. Verse 12, And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. So Paul previously addressed the implications of circumcision back in chapter 2. It was a Sunday morning message that Pastor Eric went over a couple weeks ago. And this external formality of being circumcised did not achieve a right standing with God. It was to model the internal obedience that you have to God. This external formality or this external ritual was to model what happened inwardly in your heart. And Paul made it clear that the inward obedience to the law was equated with the circumcision of the heart. And so Paul posed a question here that the readers of this letter would have a very difficult time explaining away. God declared Abraham righteous 14 years before he received the rite or the ritual of circumcision from the Lord. Therefore, the order of operation, and there's a pun intended there, the order of operation was modeled by Abraham's life. Abraham demonstrated the inward obedience to God first through his belief, through his faith, and that was credited to his account as righteousness 14 years prior before the seal of circumcision was ever given to him. Circumcision was well after faith was established or righteousness was established through faith. So the conclusion was justification had nothing to do with the act of circumcision. Circumcision was a seal of that particular transaction. So I believe many Jews would have taken offense to verses 11 and 12. And I'll give you a text that will back that conjecture up. It says, So that Abraham might be a father to all who believe. All means all. So in that sense, it's Abraham, the Jews prided themselves on being sons of Abraham. And yet for a Gentile to claim that Abraham was also their father would have been blasphemous, would have been fighting words, would have been uh, completely offensive. For the Jews prided themselves on being uh, uh, sons of Abraham. They also looked down upon Gentiles as not only second-class citizens, but subhuman, uh, created to stoke the fires of hell. Gentiles were a second-class citizen at best. So therefore, the claim that Abraham could be a father, a spiritual father to the Gentile, uh, would have incensed them. And if you read John chapter 8, you don't have to do it uh, right now, but if you read the entirety of John chapter 8, Jesus gets into a very heated discussion with the religious leaders, the Pharisees. And they start to get into a discussion about fathers. And I'm going to paraphrase a bit. Jesus says, I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. So he starts to talk about the works that he's doing, that he testifies of his works, and so does the Father. And then the Pharisees say, where is your father? As if to say, you don't have a father. You were born illegitimately. Mary was pregnant without being married. So therefore, it's a, it's a huge insult to Jesus in that sense. And so the next thing says, they say is, we are Abraham's descendants. And, and Jesus says, I know that you're Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. Kind of in this context of circumcision, you could also say, you may be circumcised of the flesh, but your heart is far from me. You know, you're seeking to kill me because you're not abiding by my words. So Jesus says, I speak the things which I have seen with my father, therefore you also do the things which you heard from your father. And then the Pharisees respond, Abraham is our father. And Jesus says in verse 44, you are of the father, the devil. 
and you want to do this as desire, desires of your father. And later on, he says he's the father of lies. So they, he gets in this really spirited dis- discussion. But again, my point being that the Jews prided themselves on being sons of Abraham, that Abraham was their forefather, and they pointed to that as a way to elevate themselves above everybody else. So the Gentiles who believe uh, uh, that Abraham was their father prior to circumcision could view Abraham as their spiritual father. In addition, the circumcised Jew, was param- uh, it was paramount that they too believed as Abraham believed, that they had the faith of Abraham outside of the rite and ritual of cir- circumcision. So circumcision did not add to Abraham's salvation. It did not add to his justification. It merely attested to it. And so Paul points out circumcision is not the way to justify yourself before God once again. And so now Paul, in the next uh, couple verses, verses 13 through 15, he's going to go back to the law, and he's going to tell them that the law does not justify either. Verse 13, for the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Verse 14, for if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is no violation. So again, Paul is now going back to the law. So if circumcision happened 14 years after uh, Abraham was Um, credited, his faith was credited as righteousness, we're going to see that the law was even, uh, was instituted long after that. We have to remember that the law of God was not given to Moses until probably, I think it's about 430 years after. And so if you look at Galatians chapter 3, and I'll turn there uh, on the screen, Paul expounds upon this idea even further. Verse 17 says, What I am saying is this, the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate the covenant previously ratified by God. The the deal made with Abraham by God is not changed at all. So as to nullify the promise, for if the inheritance is based on the law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. The promise is not changed because God instituted the law. Because this happened, again, 430 years after Abraham received the promise. So the promise is not invalidated. It's not changed. The terms of the agreement have not changed. I don't know if you've ever gotten uh, uh, user agreements that have changed midway through your uh, subscription or what have you, and all of a sudden you have to change the way you operate a a, a particular uh, uh, piece of software or something like that. All of a sudden, the user agreement changed. That's not what's going on here. God's promise is still uh, in place. So the promise would lose its value inevitably if Abraham had to abide by the law because as we pointed out, at some point, Abraham would have violated the law. Why? Because the law brings about wrath for where there is no law, there is no violation. Interesting, if you were to park along the curb and and that curb was red and then all of a sudden as you are parked there for 15 minutes and somebody came over and repainted that curb white and and ripped the no parking sign off, there's no law, there's no violation, right? I haven't broken the law. And so what, what he's saying here is it's not that there is no sin when there is no law. There's just no transgression. There's no breaking of the law is what Paul is saying. So without the law, there is no violation. There still might be some sin. You still might fall short of God's standards of expectation, which is perfection. But it doesn't mean that you've broken the law if the law is not instituted. So Abraham wasn't without sin. He wasn't a perfect man. We pointed that out. It just means that Abraham could not violate God's laws because they had not been given yet. 
And so now he's going to point to grace. Verses 16 through uh, 17, he's going to point to grace. For this reason, it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants. I love that word, guaranteed. So the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So he, again, this inclusive statement that Abraham is the father of us all, whether by way of uh, heritage or by way of a spiritual father. Verse 17, as it, is, as it is written, a father of many nations, I made you. In the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. So verse 16, again, is starting to look at not only the Hebrew, but those who are not of the Hebrew heritage or the Hebrew uh, nationality. So whether a Jew, a Jew or a person was born prior to the law or they were born after the law, it, they need to have the faith of Abraham apart from the law. Excuse me, apart from faith, you cannot justify yourself before God. So if you had the faith of Abraham, that is when one could accurately refer to Abraham as their father, their spiritual father. The Jews referred to Abraham as their forefather through a, a lineage, through an ancestry. But we can all refer to Abraham as our spiritual fathers, what Paul is saying, even if we're not of the Jewish heritage. And so when... Paul says he's a father of many nations. It can't be referring to just the nation of Israel. Although the nation of Israel was made up of 12 different tribes, it was one nation. So to be a father of many nations, the God who dwells outside of time had to foresee the course of history. Only God knew that he would send his only begotten son to die on the cross that whosoever would believe would not perish and have everlasting life. And therefore, that finished work on the cross would then result in the Great Commission. To go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. And therefore, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. To go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. So therefore, the faith that we have in Christ creates the laborers who go out and to, to make disciples. And now, Abraham is now not just the father of Israel, one nation, the father of many nations as disciples are made of all the nations. Only a God that dwells outside of time, seeing the end from the beginning, knowing the plan of salvation from the very beginning, knowing that Christ would fulfill that plan of salvation, could make such a statement in the Old Testament. And so, a father of many nations, I have made you. Abraham was uh, looked at by the Jews as just the father of Israel. God saw him as the father of many nations because of the belief system that he had, just because of his faith in Christ. And so, uh, this says, uh, in, in this passage also, it says, God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. And this term gives life to the dead. Again, we were once dead in our transgressions. We were once um, completely, spirit, or we were spiritually dead, lifeless spiritually. Though alive physically, walking around as if we were our spiritual zombie. Dead in our transgressions, uh, walking according to the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians says. But as we express the faith of Abraham, God can minister his saving power and his grace can only come when a repentant sitter admits that he is dead spiritually and is unable to help himself or herself. Once that sinner gets to that place, the grace of God can now give life to the dead. And so being dead spiritually is one who is just in a, uh, uh, standing in their own righteousness before God. And so a lot of times you're not sure what your standing is before different people. 
You might have a conversation with somebody and you say, you know, I think I'm on good terms with somebody. I think I'm on good footing with my boss or I think my wife and I are okay right now. I think we're, we're, we're in good standing. And so some people believe they have a certain standing before God, but they're standing in their own righteousness. They're standing in their own works and they have a misunderstanding as to how they, they stand before God. But when you come to Christ, you have a 100% assurance. You know where you are. It's guaranteed that your sins are forgiven and you have the faith. If you have the faith of Abraham, it is credited to your account as righteousness. And that's what Paul is really driving home here. And so finally, we're going to get to uh, verses 18 through 25, and I think we're going to make it. So we're going to look at Abraham's faith as the model for all of our faith as Christians. It is the resurrecting power, this faith that has a resurrecting power. And you're going to see Paul make connections to death and resurrection through Abraham's life and through Sarah's life. Verse 18, in hope against hope, he believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which has been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Verse 20, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as also who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Verse 25, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. So Abraham's faith in God's promise, again, is to provide he and Sarah, uh, Abraham had faith that God would provide he and Sarah with this promised son, this promised son of Isaac. And, and, and there would be resurrecting power uh, in, in that um, idea, in that faith. Because Paul draws comparisons to Abraham's body, which is described as good as dead. He's 100 years old at this point, about 99 years old. And the deadness of Sarah's womb. Imagine a woman who had been barren all of her life. She's also about 90 years old. So not only was she up in age, past childbearing years, she had been, her womb had been quote unquote dead for all of that time. And so he's drawing a comparison to Jesus raising from the dead uh, with these comparisons. Abraham's natural strength and vigor had completely dissipated at this point. I don't know about you guys, but as the years continue to go on, you don't have the same fire in your belly as you did when you were 25, 35. And I realize I'm not that far up in age quite yet, but it's very different 20 years ago uh, than where I was 20 years ago. I couldn't imagine where I would be uh, 65 years from now, 55 years from now, right? So Sarah, though barren throughout her life, would also be void of her normal vitality, her normal vigor, her normal energy as a woman of her age. And it would be unthinkable for a man who's 100 years old to even think about fathering a child, uh, a child with his 90-year-old wife, right? So, but with God, all things are possible, especially when God makes the promise. He's not going to not fulfill a promise. His timing is not our timing. And so at this point, you start to see uh, Paul refer to um, Abraham's faith in four different ways. The first way is in verse 18. Verse 18, in hope against hope, he believed. This hope is the expectation of a certain thing that, that is to come. It's a certain idea that it's going to come to pass. And so the circumstances surrounding God's promise would appear impossible 
apart from a supernatural intervention. So hope against hope, he believed. Abraham believed in, in, in God. The second way is in verse 19, the second reference to Abraham's faith. Without becoming weak in the faith, he did not become weak in the faith. Faith comprehends as fact what cannot be experienced by physical senses. I'll say that again. Faith comprehends as fact, as done, what cannot be experienced by the physical senses. So faith sees beyond the physical. It goes beyond. We are to walk by faith and not by sight. So as Abraham contemplated his 100-year-old body, his age, he's good as dead, he comprehended as fact that he would have a child even though he hadn't physically experienced it, even though he wasn't physically holding his son Isaac in his hands. He comprehended that as fact because of his faith. The third way his faith is referred to is is, uh, in verse 20. With respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in the faith, giving glory to God. Now, Abraham Abraham did have a moment of wavering. I don't know if you remember, but in Genesis chapter 17, verse 17, I I don't have it up on the board, but he wavered for a moment. I'll read it to you. It says, Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is nearly 90 years old, bear a child? He says that in his heart, and he falls on his face and laughs. He is wavering at this point in unbelief, and I love the Bible because it tells it like it is. This man, who is a pillar of the Jewish faith, who is a, an example of a, Christian, a Christian's faith, faith that makes us righteous, has a moment, right? And we all have those moments. And so this is such a human situation. This is such a human moment that we all can relate to. No matter where you are in your Christian walk, your faith is tested and you may waver. But the example that, that Paul gives is he did not, uh, his unbelief didn't um, get him off track. He grew strong in the faith, giving glory to God. He persevered through that moment of laughing, through that moment of unbelief for a moment. And though he wavered for a moment, he didn't stay there. And so that's where you need Christians to come alongside, to pray with you, to bear your burden so you're not by yourself in those moments. And so God comforted him, comfort him through this. Uh, there was an internal conversation uh, that, that he had here. But God reaffirmed Abraham. As you continue to read on in chapter 17, Abraham grew strong in the faith, resulting in the glorifying of God. As you get through that moment of wavering, if, if you have that moment of unbelief, you can uh, uh, press on through that. And when you get to the other side, the result is the glory to God. God is given the glory. And so there are times when we come to the end of ourselves, we're at a dead end, and, and we're not quite sure how it's going to work, and there's no conceivable solution, but you can give glory to God as you get through the other end of that particular uh, wavering and be a strong witness as a result of faith. And finally, that the fourth way his faith was referred to was verse 21, being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able to perform. When you are assured, fully assured that God is able to f- perform what he has promised, it results in peace and rest. You can cease striving and allow God to be God. You can cease striving and allow God to be who he is, faithful and sure. So be fully assured that what God has promised, he is able to perform. So Paul takes the doctrine of justification by faith and uses Abraham as an example, as a model, and now attaches it and applies it to Christ. Verses 23 through 25, Paul starts to apply this to Christ. 
says, now, uh, now not for this, Abraham's sake only was it written or credited to him. It was for all of our sakes. And that blows me away. God loved Abraham but had a greater purpose, a bigger plan in place. And it was in verse 24, for our sakes also. God was thinking about you and me when Abraham was credited righteousness. It was for all of our sakes for what Paul is saying here. And verse 25 is the proof text that God accepts his son's sacrifice, allowing for sinners to be justified without violating God's law or contradicting his nature. Because our sins were committed, Jesus had to die in order for salvation to be obtained. And so some people might believe in half of a gospel. And what I mean by that is, you might believe that Christ died for our sins. And that's Good Friday, right? That's what we, that's what we come in and celebrate and worship on Good Friday, is Christ died for our sins, but that's only half the gospel. What else do we celebrate on Sunday? His resurrection. That is the victory, right? The resurrection cannot be overlooked or admitted. So, right, if, if you're only looking at his death to pay for the sins and not the resurrection, then you're celebrating Good Friday without the resurrection Sunday. Yes, he died on account for our sins, but he was raised to life in order that we may be made right, made just in God's eyes. The righteous man shall live by faith. So though Abraham believed God's promise in light of his dead body, metaphorically speaking, we believe God by placing our faith and trust in Jesus Christ in light of his literal physical death and resurrection. Therefore, our debt is paid, our account is credited with the currency, the correct currency, and all because of God's unmerited favor and his grace. And so I'm going to leave you with a little quick story because uh, it, it, God spoke to me through uh, my golden retriever, believe it or not. Not that he spoke to me like Balaam's donkey or anything like that. But typically I, I, I have coffee in the morning. I spend my time uh, in the word in the morning. And my dog starts to see the signs as to when I'm starting to get finished. And he starts to lose his mind because his no, he knows his walk is coming. So anytime I start to get a hat on, I put my cup away, I get my shoes on, he starts to see the signs and he gets excited. Two mornings ago, I had to take my kids to school. And so even though I had to do all of those things, he got excited and then I took my kids to school and I left. And so what he didn't know was I was going to come back and give him a walk. But when I came back and I came to the door, guess what? He wasn't waiting for me. Usually when I put that key in the door, he's right there at the door, and I knew he was sleeping. He was on his pillow sleeping. He didn't think I was coming back. The Lord's coming back, guys. And we need to be, as we see the signs, just like my dog sees the signs that his walk is coming, right? He knows that, that his walk is coming. Every time I put my hat on, my coat on, I put my shoes on, he sees the signs, he gets excited, he's on alert, and he's waiting for that door to open and that leash to go on and for him to go on a walk. But just because I delayed, he gave up on me. He went and slept on his pillow. And right now, it might feel like the Lord is, is waiting and, it, and his, time is, 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 his timing is not our timing. We can't go to sleep. We gotta stay vigilant. We gotta stay on alert. We gotta be on our Christian game, so to speak, more now than ever. And so as I was putting him on the leash, and again, he just got fired all, uh, up all again, you know, I said, you know, you were sleeping. You were, sleep you, you were not at the door waiting. You were not ready for this walk. And so just an encouragement to everybody here. We still got to stay ready. The signs are all around us. We see prophecy uh, being fulfilled before our eyes. And, and so just be on alert. Stay ready. Stay girded. Stay in the word. Stay in fellowship. Stay in prayer. And uh, don't, don't go to sleep on the pillow. Let's pray. 
Father God, we thank you for the beauty of your word. We thank you that Paul so eloquently and so articulately articulately laid out that justification is by faith. Apart from faith, we cannot attain any sort of righteousness. Our works are as but a filthy set of rags. But Lord, once we do come to that saving faith, once we do receive your grace and your mercy, and we receive Christ as our Lord and Savior, our account is zeroed out. And not only that, we are credited with your righteousness, which means it's just as if we've never sinned. And then you also save us from the presence of sin and the power of sin. And so, Lord, you are so good and complete. And we thank you that we have this assurance. It's guaranteed. Our salvation is sure in you. That once we put our faith and trust in Christ, our salvation is guaranteed because you cannot lie and you make good on your promise. Once you make a promise, you make good on it 100% of the time. Thank you for your faithfulness. And so Lord, as we're, as we're talking about justification by faith, if you have not put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, if you're putting your faith and trust in your own works or your own righteousness or being a good guy or a good gal or whatever it is, I just wanna give you that opportunity. It's a simple prayer. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it, and you never will, but neither did we. (laughs) Those who have received Christ didn't deserve it either. We just receive it as a gift, and then you go from there. You get discipled. You get trained up in the word. You mature. You grow. So I'd like to give you that opportunity. If there's anybody out there that hasn't received their justification, their right standing by faith, and you're trying to achieve it in some other way, There is no other way. Paul made it abundantly clear. There's one way but to the Father, and that is through the Son, Jesus Christ. May I pray with you? And is there anybody out there that would like to receive the Lord? Raise your hand, and we'll say a simple prayer. I see your hand in the back. Amen. Amen. Is there anybody else that would like to receive justification by faith? those of you who have raised your hand, just go ahead and repeat after me. Father in heaven, I have sinned and I have fallen short of your righteousness. I receive forgiveness of sin. I receive your grace, your mercy. I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Thank you for bearing the penalty for my sin. And thank you that my faith is credited to me as righteousness. I receive your forgiveness. I receive the free gift of eternal life. Help me to live for you. Keep me from the sins that so easily entangle me. And may I glorify you the rest of my days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. The Bible says that the angels rejoice with even one who repents. And so when you repent and turn from your sin and turn to Christ, you now are in the family of God. 
you are now considered a saint. And so uh, before you leave, please uh, stop by the information center. We have discipleship materials that will get you rooted and grounded. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to get a Bible in your hands. We will give you one. Um, and just continue. I, we encourage you to stay plugged into this church or any other church, a Bible teaching, God-loving, God-fearing church. And so, uh, guys, may you have a blessed rest of your week. May uh, the Lord go before you, keep you, keep you safe, and, and bless you and your families. And so why don't we stand for a final song?